0: This is Loudspeaker.
1: Please don't go, I need you, so I. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog. I feel like I haven't said that in a really long time. It's the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. I am your host, Adrienne VanderValk. And I'm so happy to be back with you after a long, long hiatus. If you are a regular listener, you know we haven't been together since July, which is far too long. But I had to take a break so I could pick up my entire world and move from Montgomery, Alabama to Jersey City, New Jersey, which is right across the Hudson River from New York City. So now I get to look at the Statue of Liberty every day on my morning walk, which is kind of awesome, but also fills me with many mixed feelings these days, as I'm sure you can imagine. Anyway, I am thrilled to be back and to bring you today's interview with a writer named Jessica Hoppy, who I had never met before we talked, uh, but basically I read an amazing article she wrote about racism in recovery spaces, and I stalked her on the internet, as one does. And said that I'd love to talk to her because for me, feminism and racism and substance abuse disorders are all very closely intertwined. She said yes, and we had a lovely talk. It was really hard to pick the best nuggets for this episode, but um, I hope you enjoy what she has to say. Jessica's article was called, The First Step to Recovery is Admitting You Are Not Powerless Over Your Privilege. And I highly encourage you to read it, even if you are not in recovery Because what she has to say about how white supremacy shows up in Alcoholics Anonymous can actually be applied to how white supremacy shows up in a lot of our institutions. Now, I want to be clear that neither Jessica nor I are bashing anyone in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've interviewed people on this podcast who use AA and find it very useful for them. One of my dearest friends recently joined AA and it has completely given him his life back and transformed him in ways he never thought were possible for him. So I know that it is it can be life-changing for a lot of people, but that is not everyone's experience. And one of the ways that we get better as a society is to be critical of our institutions. So I want to say right off the top, I do not want to cancel AA. Jessica does not want to cancel AA but she has a lot of really important things to say about the stories we don't often hear about the experiences of people of color in 12-step recovery spaces. One of the key points Jessica makes in her piece is that although AA claims to be apolitical, this is not always true when it's white membership has something to say. This rule is more likely to be enforced in mixed race meetings when people of color express their pain. So while Jessica is really clear that she is in no way telling people not to use AA, she's pointing out the ways in which an institution, which has been practically a monolith until recently, has work to do when it comes to reckoning with its racist origins and meeting the needs of its most vulnerable members. For Jessica, being asked to suppress her ego in AA felt unnatural and disconnected from an authentic relationship to herself that she sees now was not only helpful, but necessary to her recovery as a Latinx woman with indigenous roots and a first-generation U.S. citizen. She also felt like AA, and you may hear her refer to meetings as being in the rooms, made promises to her about the magic of recovery that didn't account for her identity or her lived experiences.
0: If the doctor told me, you can't drink anymore for X whatever reason. I, I would definitely be paying attention to that because yeah, my health is primary, my physical health, but it's not the thing that's gonna keep me going. You know, there is something else that I'm connected to that's that's spiritual, that's emotional, that's, you know, that's that's driving me or that's, that's keeping me working towards the best version of myself, you know? And that's believing that, I can show up and I don't want to betray myself. I just want to develop a sense that I'm worthy of, of being here as myself. Yeah, it's, it's not the tools to give you the life of your dreams. It's, you know, it's the tools to live the life that you have, right? So like that understanding was something that I heard more recently and meanwhile, you know, that sort of language is really the language of, of systems of oppression, of capitalism, of for-profit structures. And so we can't really, I don't, I don't believe that we can have that in a system to get people well, because I feel like that's still chasing a carrot. And then when you're in a room with people, and particularly for me, when I was in a room of people who were all wealthy and living in, I mean, New York, Manhattan is one of the like wealthiest places in the world. And people are sort of like, oh, well, why is this girl coming in and time after time? She's crying, you know, she like lost her job twice. Like, what's going on? Like, she's going to get better. You need to get more sober. And the, the consequence of my supposedly not getting sober, you know, the way people could tell that was that I lost my job, was that I kept crying. And so I started to believe that myself. I was like, oh, this stuff is my fault. When I know damn well I was fired from my one job because I was being sexually harassed because we were in the middle of the Kavanaugh hearing. And it was a financial institution that played the news on the... And I was having these terrible flashbacks about my own rape. I was going to the bathroom to cry because of the conversation that was occurring on that floor of the racism the misogyny, the sexism rather, and then the, the misogyny that I, that I experienced. And if you speak up, oh well, they'll put you on the track to get rid of you no, no problem, no matter what. But when I came to the rooms, it was a matter of sobriety and zen and, and wellness and an inner peace and something that I had just not achieved yet. And it was such classism and privilege, and and racism, ultimately. Classism and racism are are just, like I said recently, they're two heads of the same snake, just like sexism. So when, when you are in the intersection of all these things, and you're bringing this, all these conditions, there's no way to get better in the way that, ways that you need. So I started pulling away, <laughs> I, I really did. And I started questioning a lot of things. And then the damn pandemic happened. Like, oh, holy moly. And I re-entered the rooms like via Zoom and I was I just wasn't um, connecting. And then, wow, George Floyd and, you know, the latest iteration of the Black Liberation Movement because people have been fighting for this forever, and it just the <laughs> the connection, the connective tissue here, it, it cannot be denied. And if anyone is in the room silencing people, you must understand that is that is completely racist. You know, it, it's completely harmful. Uh, There's no ifs, ands, or buts. If you're telling people principles before personalities, personality, if you're telling people outside issues, if you're silencing people, if you're messaging them in the chat and saying, can we direct? This sounds a little hostile. Or you're being offensive, or you're calling BIPOC bigots. People are saying, well, thank God we don't have to talk about this in AA because then we'd have to protest AA like everything else. Things like this are very harmful. I cannot say that like just more plainly, it's completely harmful.
1: In addition to being silenced about the death of George Floyd, Jessica told me another story about an experience she had when the protests first began that made it clear the recovery community she was part of at the time was not equipped to support her.
0: I had a moment in an AA meeting that was originally my home group, and there was a time where everything was sort of popping off in New York. And there were some looting here in Soho where I live. And I woke up to a bunch of texts, uh, this group text that I was on from one friend who happened to be all white women, uh, you know, who are all pretty affluent and living not in New York, but around in the suburbs and like the suburbs around the city. And some are in the city as well. But It was only talk, it was like ping, 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 text, 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 all about what happened to the Chanel store, what happened, oh, the state of Soho, oh, the, you know, and I was like, just inferior, not one person mentioned what the protests are for, the innumerable amount of bodies and black death that are occurring around us. I was uh, beside myself and this, this happened and, and I'm telling you, the rooms were no different, exactly the same. Everyone was just like, oh my, I can't sleep. And it's just, you know, I'm very far from my sobriety because, you know, if I, if I'm not sleeping, then I'm not sober. And,
1: and I'm just like,
0: oh my, oh, oh my, indeed, you know, like, (laughs) oh Oh boy, the privilege! And everyone was just sort of underneath this this safe umbrella that people have, you know. People sort of trot out to be like, "Well, we don't deal with that here. We don't. We don't do that here. That only falls upon people who are marginalized because we're protecting the comfort of the majority, and we're calling it sobriety. You know, your sobriety is your sobriety. You own that. You are responsible for that. If I've endured being told that it was hard to hear me after sharing about my rape and i didn't drink or pick up you sure as hell can listen to someone who is black who is a person of color talk about how racism has seriously thwarted and 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 changed their life their trajectory like career career trajectory their mental health you know like just so many, so many different ways that literally affect why someone would drink or use. And uh, now you're laying them with conditions. Now they cannot, you know, be here and be, be talking about this. And now, we, you know, people will just say, outside issue, can we redirect?
1: In her article, Jessica laid out some of the history of AA that led us here. It was started in 1935 by two white men and was originally only available to white men. Although the organization pays lip service to the idea of a higher power being, quote, whatever that might mean to you, the trappings are unmistakably Christian. And what Jessica's talking about when she says principles before personalities or outside issues is that AA is very keen on the benefits of focusing on the program rather than whatever is going on in the outside world, which distracts from the work and might function as an excuse to stray from the program. But as we talked about in my interview with Holly Whitaker, this idea of needing to suppress the self or the ego is really geared at white men, because people who don't carry the same kind of social capital are already suppressing themselves and their egos all the time. But because AA is so old and established and revered by the people that it does work for, and because there are so few alternatives— Speaking up is treated like blasphemy in many circles.
0: I'm not here to like call out IA or take away anyone's passy and you know if if these things really work for you I applaud that and they have worked for many people although realistically a lot of the statistics that I uh, researched find that it's a really small percentage of people uh, that are part of AA and that it even works for. 14 million people, just over 14 million people, admit, and we know how readily people are willing to admit that they have a dependence with drugs or alcohol. This was specifically for alcohol, and not even two percent of those people are in AA. We're talking about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. What's confusing about that is that. Every time you will speak to even my therapist, who I've been with for a decade, who I love is like a family member to me, knows the ins and outs, said, try AA. That's the thing. I, I, it's the hegemony of it. And it's just like the no questions asked. And this is where you can go. And I think it's mostly because it's, it's an egalitarian sort of, you know, it's free. Everyone is talking about the poverty of mental health care, the poverty of holistic wellness for BIPOC, and I can't assume that I represent, you know, every spectrum of that experience. I'm cognizant of that, and I really want to be a productive member of that conversation, and oftentimes that simply means that I pass the mic. However, I'm 37 years old, and I'm just getting to a point where I'm feeling confident, but I I also want to be aware of the fact that it's so hard to step forward, you know, it feels really good to stand so shoulder to shoulder with, with other women and in other causes, and I'm so uh, fierce about doing that. It is more difficult to step out of that line and and forward no less, and really own what the fuck I want to say because, a um, fear. So if it's fear that's causing me to kind of want to stay back, then I want to just take a pause on that and, um, and step forward, you know, because I know what I'm talking about, I really do. And I want to, you know, I want to grow into that. I don't want to be crippled by fear.
1: Jessica has been sober for four years, a huge accomplishment and one she does not take for granted. And it's taken her a long time to get to this place she's facing her fears. The story about how she decided to get sober is a pretty remarkable one, and I was honored that she shared it with me. I think it says a lot about who she is and why a big part of her recovery is cultivating a connection to her own innate value as a person.
0: I really didn't tell anybody in the beginning. I, I just hibernated. I just locked myself up and I was like, okay, I'm going to do these 90 days and, and see how it goes. And I, don't, I, I know that I cannot hear anyone else's opinion because they're going to tell me that and I'm, I'm not going to be prepared to answer. I need to investigate this for myself. So I really only told uh, my sister, and my mother, and um, my brother-in-law, who was there too, the night that I told them that I was crossing the West Side Highway in a blackout and a woman who was sitting on the steps of the Guggenheim saw me. And she grabbed me off before i was hit by you know coming traffic and that's how i got sober that woman asked me my name over and over and she she saved my life and she was worried about me so she she asked for my phone and she grabbed me an uber and the uber uh, came back a few minutes later and told her like he couldn't put up with me for another minute in the in the the car, I don't even open my Uber app anymore. Like it's been four years and I have not opened the Uber app (laughs) because I won't. My rating, oh my God. But um, he dropped me off somewhere by Bowling Green and that is still in Manhattan. I woke up in Brooklyn Heights. I was sharing an apartment with my then partner and I had no idea what happened. I left that place with like a bottle of belvedere or something that i was drinking i was always between like only wine or like only vodka and that that literally had to do with calorie intake and so yeah i just hold up um at a loft in tribeca with my my other ex you can see how clear my boundaries were in this time he was gone and traveling so i had this place to myself and i could feel you know i could feel that something awful had happened. I just had no memory. So when she found me by like Googling me, it was a shock of my life. I I knew I was, you know, not doing well, but I did not know all the things that she told me, but she was, she was very gentle and she saved my life. And she said, if you want to know uh, what happened that night, I'm happy to tell you this is my number. If you ever have questions about alcohol, my, my mother has been in AA for 30 some odd years. And yeah, everything she told me was definitely true, but completely unbelievable. You know, like a just ridiculous, miraculous story. I'm so, her name is Claire. And I reach out to her like on my anniversary and just say, you know, one year, two years. And I say, thank you. And that's about it. It's interesting to feel like, I've written about that too. Like it was mostly the, the grace of that moment that I, you know, I knew that there were several times in my life where I I could have died or I did die. That was definitely the, the last time that I was okay with that. I was in my mind and body, you know, I know that I'm behaving. And in many ways I didn't have like a great will to live, <laughs> but I didn't want to die. So I, I wanted to honor that. And the gift that she had uh, given me and that I felt some other, you know, God-like entity was looking after me.
1: Recovery has looked different for Jessica at different points over the last four years. And this past summer, the pandemic, the uprising around the movement for Black lives, and her research and realizations about white supremacy culture and cultural appropriation in AA have shifted her priorities as she looks ahead at what recovery will look like for her in the future. Right now, she is attending exclusively meetings attended by Black and Indigenous people of color.
0: I go to meetings, I'd say, three three times a week. I think of my recovery as just, I've just chosen that this is the best way to live my life period. You know, um, I recently met Holly Whitaker. She was really great. And I saw that Join Tempest wrote something, and it's also in her book, like, to create a life that you don't have to escape from. And I really love that. And that that's my goal. And to not use sobriety as sort of, a, I was thinking about it, you know, from the patriarchal <laughs> standpoint, like, be good, you know, rack up the points and you'll get X, Y, Z. You know, um, I was definitely thinking of it as a good behavior thing. I was internalizing my bad behavior. I started waking up to the idea that that might not be for me. You know, I appreciate what AA as a program has to offer in the way of having some kind of spiritual structure that available for free i just think it's like i wrote in my piece it's there is no other institution that has lasted nearly a century that has not made adjustments and they've made other concessions i think it's just very very hard to change it so i'm not so much interested in that i just i truly believe in the fact that we need people. You know, we need the solidarity, we need the connection, and we need a a space to be together. So my recovery looks like I am developing a community uh, of people who want to be together and talk about how recovery is affecting our lives and central to our wellness and that, that not be Uh, restricted by any limitations or conditions on the conversation.
1: Jessica also talked about how some of the things that make recovery such a special experience are the same things that can cause us to ignore or overlook problematic or even oppressive behaviors.
0: I just feel like the recovery journey is so sacred to people. You know, a lot of us, we're really precious about it, right? And so, especially in AA, and now, and we also have these parameters, di que, as we say in Spanish, uh, traditions. And so they're really easy to silence people in the name of solidarity, in the name of the group, you know, this call, protect protect the system that we're all a part of, instead of the person in the corner who is very likely marginalized in life, and tell that person to figure it out, you know? You know, and then tell them things like, "Well, it's self-centered ego." Oh, well, do four step on that, and so on and so forth. You know, and it's sort of like it always puts that back on to the person who just sort of said, "Hey, uh, something about this doesn't feel right." You know, is is telling me that that something's wrong. I have gone to exclusively bipoc meetings. I've gone to mixed you know, environments, and and I've experienced some of the same things. It's not the same coming from um, a BIPOC person, but if we all are in colonized systems, we all have colonized minds, and we need to be aware of that. You know, just because I'm the one BIPOC person who has been ingratiated or f- for whom this clicked with doesn't mean that everyone in the same room is going to have the same experience. And I have that conversation with my family, too, because in my writing and unpacking my upbringing growing up in a rich town and we are poor growing up you know brown obviously so and uh in a white town and what that experience was for me and my parents my sisters we were all there like you you know and and none of us have had this language none of us like raising the social consciousness the collective critical consciousness surrounding what oppressive systems actually are like and putting that into concrete language and being able to explain it is very much like sexism, misogyny, sexual assault. You know, there's no way of explaining this and feeling like the person receiving the information can fully, fully understand it, you know? Like and that's why you get someone will report a sexual assault or someone will try to explain, you know, a come on or a pass or, or something inappropriate. And people will ask you, what were you doing? What were, you, what were you wearing? Where were you? Or why were you there? Or what were you doing? You know, these kinds of things. It's never accepted. Like this was my experience. We could be sitting in the same damn room, listening to the same thing. And I'm not going to receive it the way you're going to receive it. And we need to start to honor that. and not And not be like, oh, no, the whole group, the majority of the group is going left. And so you know what, you over there, figure out a way to turn, you know, figure out a way. No, we should be listening to that person and understanding, you know, what is making them uncomfortable. And we as the collective should say, we're not going to leave you behind. It was a sign of my getting better that I started to wake up to those things, even though I felt it right away. Because it's so familiar to me, you know? I've been doing this since I'm little. You know, the first time I was in school and a boy asked me if I was black and I was like, "I, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Made me. What is that? I said, you know, and he like ran away from me and like kicked dirt. And it was like, you know, it was it's like a central story for me. And, you know, I think we all can recall the first moments of rejection or, or pain in that way.
1: Jessica's family story is really central to her own. Her father is Ecuadorian and her mother is from Honduras. Being first generation is an important part of her identity and one that people who have not had the experience of laboring directly under oppressive American dream narratives don't necessarily understand.
0: Like all immigrant families, you know, one of the major tropes is that you play by the rules, you keep your head down, you do the things that the system says you do in order to be part of and you will be rewarded. And that is absolutely not true at all. So when you're you're like I'm doing all the things reward me, absolutely not. And and you go a little, you you go mad, you know, you go crazy. And that same um, that same thing started to happen in AA. You know, I'm I'm not my life is not unfolding. And and when I'm sharing this in the rooms, it's never a consideration of how I operate and must operate in these systems that y'all operate in and have these results for, for specific reasons. And they're not happening that way for me. And what I do want to talk to them, you talk about them, you silence me, whether they be about sexual assaults or trauma in that way as a woman, or, you know, race-related trauma, race-related oppression that I'm facing. and sort of got turned around either like very specifically in just saying principles before personalities or do step four, or, you know, we're all limited by our uh, self obsession. And really, what we should be doing is accepting and loving each other. Um, And these are all like wild instances, because I got sober right as Trump was elected. So so many occasions arose where I was like, holy, is this real? Are you really saying this to me? Like, or is this really happening? And so it was a, it's been a wild ride, <laughs> and, um, and I thought that, I think as I said in my Instagram video, I, I felt like remaining silent on it was just another form of oppression, but I was very scared.
1: Jessica is telling her sobriety story and talking about her issues with AA, not just because she wants better recovery options for people like her, but because it represents a shift that she sees the U.S. needing to make more broadly
0: we can talk about politics, policy, history, and those things are so important. What actually makes people care about an issue is a story, is the understanding that you might think that this is something that's on the floor of the house or not about you because you live in New York or whatever you think is happening. This is something, it's right beside you, I promise you. It is right beside you and you should care because you have a role in it. Even if it's having a conversation with your family or your friends or whatever, I promise you, these issues are close, they're intimate to, you know, they're profound for all of us. And so it happens that those stories are in me, in my family, you know. I, it wasn't until I was a year sober that my grandfather passed away in Honduras. He came here and he worked as a dishwasher at a commercial hotel from the day he started to the day he left. He never got a raise, a promotion, a, a change, you know, in his life and he, he drank. He went back to Honduras to retire and um, when he died we received word from there and my my mom obviously was very upset and she hadn't gotten to speak to him and You know, it was very painful for her But she started to tell me about what it was like with an alcoholic follower And I said to her mom, um, you never told me any of these things before and It just sort of occurred to her, you know to be more honest about it or maybe because of my sobriety it. it she was like, oh, this is familiar to me, you know, and she started seeing it, you know in this contextualized way in in her father and in me I think but I asked her how does it feel to have had a father who's an alcoholic and and now you have a daughter who's an alcoholic and she was like don't say that about yourself Jesse I don't think of you that way and um, I was like but I but I am mom you know I, I am and I need you to see you know, there's no difference here. You know, between me and your dad. And a lot of times, I think, and I, and I've, I'm not shared with her. You know, she'll probably listen to this. She doesn't. She doesn't like it that much. It's very hard to read, to read anything when you're written about. But I feel like, in some ways, you know, the pain that she experienced having an, an absent, abusive, alcoholic father were so traumatic, and. There's no way that she, on a subconscious level, cannot project, you know, those onto my experience. And so in some ways, I feel like I'm teaching, you know, and I'm, I'm fighting some ways for my mother's love, you know, because I, I don't want, I just don't want it to continue to be perceive the way it is solely like, not that my grandfather is not responsible for the things that he did, just that I can be here now to say to her, you know, he never chose drinking over you, you know, that's how it works. And I think it's just been really, it's been a really deep, deep healing for all of us, you know, we're starting to unravel a lot of things and, and put a lot of pieces together. I don't think that we need to be hiding this anymore and people still are and and mostly women and mostly people of color are are forced to hide it because these are just things that are more stigmatized for these groups women and femmes so it's just like and women and women of color especially femmes of color especially so you know those things um taking those on together as communities shoulder to shoulder that's what is going to be most helpful, because uh, I don't know if anything will happen within institutions that are just so deeply embedded.
1: Jessica is a prolific writer. She just published another article for The Temper called How a First-Generation Latina Found Recovery and Healed Family Trauma. I'll link it in the show notes. In addition to writing about recovery, she is also the mind behind Nueva Yorka, a popular blog slash Instagram slash editorial and branding platform that I highly recommend you check out. And she's also writing a book and a column for In the Know, all creative outlets that she says have helped her find trust in herself, her ideas, and her voice, as well as connect with other people at a time when it's easy to feel isolated.
0: I started this year, actually a couple of months ago with a pandemic, talking about sobriety. And I heard from a lot of new people and then the way you know everything that went down through the pandemic and in the uh black liberation movement i was like okay i just i think the best thing for people writers any anyone who's searching for a sense of purpose in their life there's always going to be something that that grabs a hold of you and won't let go and and you have to really honor that and and if it's still there find a way to honor it you know and and i think that's a part of staying healthy and staying sober and i think being you know using drugs and alcohol and relationships and shopping and all these other things it kept me able to ignore that voice and and wherever yorker really helped me find my voice and so it's been like my north star and i really appreciate uh, you know i'm so grateful to that little platform <laughs> and so And that's how I really came into my writing too. And now I've been able to publish with the New York Times and Vogue and Paper Magazine and Yahoo and join as a contributor at Sad Girls Club, which is also a great platform that I think um, you'd be interested in looking into and sharing. It's all about destigmatizing mental health and providing resources and, and just open dialogue.
1: I want to extend a huge thank you to Jessica for her bravery in telling her story and for her generosity with her time. And thank you to all of you for listening and being patient with me while I got my life together to get back to Feminist Hot Dog. I am so happy to be back. You can support Feminist Hot Dog on Patreon and find the podcast on most social media platforms. Our theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music and our graphics are by Square Lightning Design. Stay safe out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, and as always, love yourself and love your friends. Goodbye. This is Loudspeaker.